Hello, and thanks for joining us on the Writers' Meeting with Dr. Michael Lightman. Hello, and our first topic for today, protection in Israel. Protection extortion is uh, in Israel. Many cities in southern Israel have been under tremendous construction momentum. In recent years, alongside with this trend, contractors in many cities talk about criminal families charging protection. They ask you if you need a guard. Uh, you refuse. You're being robbed. Your business is burned down. Usually these are clans from the Arab population. And it's happening in the north. It's happening in the south. Citizens turn on their own initiative to pay protection before they open a business, a few thousands of shekels a month, in order to for their business to be able to exist. Police doesn't give uh, an answer to it. How can we deal with this? This is a blow that crosses from country to country, and there were such waves in southern Europe, in the north too, but especially in southern Europe, also in our area, in the U.S., in Mexico, actually everywhere. The question is, how do we deal How do we deal with it? How can we deal with it if we have no government? How can you deal if there's no hard hand that can really take things into their hands and restore order? I don't know. I don't understand how it's possible to organize the country altogether with what's going on here. All the more such things. You're saying that actually it's a global phenomenon. It was a global phenomenon. They somehow overcame it in all the developed countries. But here, it's under the rug. It happens everywhere. First of all, what's the reason for this kind of phenomenon of protection, of criminals extorting protection. First of all, that you can make money, those that are insolent and powerful. Can we learn something from what the nations of the world did against it and apply that here in Israel? Or something different in Israel? Here it's even worse, because here you have the Arab mafia, the Israeli mafia, the the government mafia, from different directions. I don't know. It seems to me that every government that comes to power is too weak to overcome anything and arrange things in the country, restore order in any way. I look at it very passively. I'm very skeptic about it. Okay, let's forget about the government. As citizens, as a business owner, would it be right to get together, to resist this, to fight against it? Look, you have many such movies about the Wild West, about different things that happened in the U.S., about how those rule, these rule, one way, another. How to get into all this. For this, you nonetheless need a strong regime, people that understand there's no choice but to restrain this insolence. But again, here it's very multifaceted because it's Arabs and Jews and these and those, and it's related to the government, so it's divided according to different parties or denominations. It's I'm not getting into it. I have no idea. Were you to have a strong regime, what law would you enact against this? Were there a strong regime, I'd hang all the heads of mafia. Really hang them. Protection isn't only for businesses, but construction, constructors, everything. Anyone who 
leans out of the boundaries from from within the boundaries of the law needs to be met by the law. Jews are starting to move away from the north, north, from the south, we're like giving up gradually. Jews understand that this country isn't working in their favor or in the favor of its citizens, and therefore they too don't take the police into account, the government, because they're, it's all buy and sell. And therefore, this is our attitude toward the regime. And is there a way to restore sanity? It's only a matter of a strong hands, strong leadership. Of course, it's possible, but I don't see who can do it. I don't know. It needs to be, there need to be special times, a special opportunity a special man to do it for the mission, and then it'll happen. And you don't see it happening on the horizon right now. I'm not familiar with what goes on there, and who can, who can't, who's close, who isn't. I don't want to be involved in it, and therefore I left this entire system a long time ago. I understood that in the ordinary way in which they exist, they simply replace each other, and not that something useful will come as a result. What are those conditions that will bring to this unique, the unique conditions that will bring change in Israel as a result of all forces joining hands? I don't know what to say. Seems to me that it needs to be some military person with some police person along with uh, the prime minister and a few more such important people that will determine what needs to be the order from now on. And they'll go with the army, with the police, against all those felons, criminals. What does this growing culture of crime, families, and criminals in the Arab society point out? It's natural. Were I, instead of the crime organizers, then I'd do the same. If you have the ability to overtake, take over some land in the Negev, or not even in the Negev, in the center of Israel, and there to do what we need in order to profit and gain more and more, then explain to me, please, why not? Why do we see it less among Jews? Because Jews, first of all, they take the government, the, the, the regime into consideration, the laws, they're a bit more uh, considerate of it than Arabs are. Uh, Arabs have lots of support from abroad. They're more insolent. Jews are a bit less. Therefore, things aren't working to the benefit of Jews here. It's not working to the benefit of the country. It's really... We're losing in this realm as well. And here it's a matter of connection. Connection between the uh, Arab regime and the Arab mafia and the Jewish mafia. It's all connected and eventually it turns against the country, breaking it. Jews lately feel weak and are afraid of Arabs and it's growing. We're doing it ourselves. How could it be any other way if we allow Arabs to enter our area? Arabs understand only force. Only force, it's known, it's written. And if that's how it is, then we need to take that into account. 
It is the character of the nation that understands only power, and throughout its history, they did not act according to the Bible or anything, but according to the ruler, you know, under force. And so, obviously, they'll use any opportunity that they have in order to threaten, apply pressure, etc. And they know how to play it out, especially that all of our elected members are willing to do anything for them just in order to get you know, a role in office. What weakened us as Jews, not about their nature, where does our fear of Arab comes, uh, Arabs come from? Because we don't understand that our power is our connection. There is no power besides that. Therefore, we, the more we disintegrate, the more we weaken and leave our forces are dissolving we're leaving the we're, we're leaving the land where the way that we're in now the country has no future who are Jews supposed to be afraid of of themselves what do you mean of themselves of their weakness, of their stupidity, this is what they need to be afraid of. And what can turn us into a strong nation, not necessarily against other nations, but simply to become a strong nation. Only the dissemination of our method. What does the nation depend on and its connection and its force? That's how it needs to be. We need to explain it. Okay, moving on to our next topic, the 4th of July in the U.S., please. Independence Day in the U.S., July 4th, will be celebrated this year in a less festive atmosphere. The Consumer Price Index, the Central Inflation Index, rose in May by 8.6% compared to the same period last year, the highest increase since December 1981. As a result of the war and the rise in world oil prices, it recorded a monthly increase of 16.9% in May, bringing the 12-month increase to almost 109%. Consumer, for their part, are cutting back on shopping because of rising prices. 39% planning to buy less than they did in previous years. According to official figures, close to 4 million Americans are expected to fly over the weekend of Independence Day, the lowest figure since 2011 when the economy was still recovering from the Great Recession. So what happened to the American dream? First of all, it's always in ups and downs. This is already something that we know. This is the law. This one thing. Another thing is that Americans can't live under today's conditions like they used to in the past. They're taking in plenty of people from abroad with the immigration waves and everything. They're making many such plans that their financial system can't hold. They need to see to what measure did they need to update their systems <clears throat> along with the general development of the country and the state and the, the and society and the world. Otherwise, the U.S. is in a downfall. 
That's it. I'm not as smart as they are. I don't understand the American economy like they do, but probably they're not taking into account all the figures about the dynamics that our world's in. We think that the world is as it was. It has nothing to do with economy. It has nothing to do with the systems that people make, create. Because there's nothing new under the sun, meaning, but humanity in these systems is changing. The systems aren't changing, but humanity is from generation to generation. And we with our laws, can't take it into account. And so what follows is that suddenly we see that we're behaving like before. But we profit less or even lose more. Why? Because we are not taking into account that man's changing. Society's changing. And we need to upgrade, adjust, make an adjustment between humanity, between society, and the laws of nature. Otherwise, we will be in a loss. We'll be falling behind. I don't know what exactly are they doing there, economists, and the smart people, but according to what is going on, there is some kind of big flaw there that they're not taking into consideration. I'm not going to teach them anything, and I'm sure that I don't understand these things deeply, but there is an incompatibility between social development and the forces of the world that are changing us. And the result's negative. So where is the U.S. headed, according to what she's saying, with this incompatibility? It's deteriorating. It's going down. And its assets, power, it still has enough, right? It has a very dynamic system that you can change. You can change some half percent of something, and everything changes. But from year to year, it's getting worse. You said that it's all ups and downs and that it's something natural that goes on in the world with countries. So we can say that the U.S. is now at the bottom or is it exaggerated to say maybe they're not so low yet? No, no, it's not something temporary that will go away by itself. No. I think that they need to start correcting themselves seriously, systematically. How? Well, there are many things here. Many things. First of all, uh, well, I, I don't want to get into it, really. There will be more questions than before. The deterioration of the U.S., does it have an impact over the world? Sure, it does. Such a big economy. The U.S. influences the world more than any other country, including China. What do you mean? Because it's a very important big economy, so it has an impact. What's the question? Obviously. So, immigrants aren't helping economy, well, don't they help economy because it's manpower? Isn't this the right math to do? I don't think that immigrants are the problem, even though that there are more immigrants, there's more problems with immigrants than 
the benefits that they bring because they allow such forces into the country that later I don't know what does the country gain from it at all. Does it not need to invest later in those immigrants in order to calm them down, settle them down, etc., etc.? I don't know. I have really... I'm not familiar with what goes on there in the past. I was more involved, but the current situation shows how the U.S. depends on what goes on in the world. So maybe it's more correctly to say that America isn't celebrating its independence, but interdependence. Yeah, that's that's more true. But that's the problem, that the more interdependent, the more dependent America is on the world, the question is, to what extent does it understand that it's dependent on the world, and how does it plan and arrange itself along with the world, and not that it's superior to the world? This is the question. Americans still aren't so much taking into consideration that all those days of the rule of American economy have passed. Maybe uh, what is the independence of a country? There's no such thing. No such thing, independence of a country. We saw it everywhere. In Germany, France, England, U.S., Russia, China, we don't see it on them yet, but soon we will. But the Chinese, they're very cautious. But they too will nonetheless go into these situations, even though that by character they are very slow and cautious. Cautious of anything that isn't that doesn't match the Chinese character. So what powers are there in the world now besides, you know, in the past it was very clear that America was above everything. How did that change? We need to reach a state where it will be clear that there's no one in control in the world. But in order for us to reach a whole complete and safe system, we need to be in a mutual kind of system where that all of us will come closer to one another, that we'll all build a system of interdependence. So that's the direction? Yes, that's the future, the future of the world. The direction in which we'll discover how dependent on each other we are. Suppose there are different eco crises, suppose there are different economic crises that are going on. Economic crises are being revealed all the time because each of us wants to be more than the other, to benefit at the expense of others profit at the expense of others, not understanding that we're in a global integral system. And therefore, here and there, all the time, there will be revelations of different crises. And that's how it's going to continue until until we will discover the, the willingness the ability to see these things as one system that's interconnected, that's ready to digest and a global economic system. If a strong country like the U.S. is in crisis, the U.S. is not strong. America isn't strong. Strong is he who knows how to control himself. 
Americans don't know how to control themselves. And therefore, they're not strong. But still, it is a very powerful country and a very meaningful one. But along with it, along with, you know, being in this feeling for so many years, it really ruins, corrupts the country, twists it in a certain direction that we can, we're capable, we, we, we. And therefore, to succeed all the time is not to the benefit of a person and not to the benefit of the country, of a country. And therefore, I don't think that it will last for long. What is a country that is in control of itself, like the example that you gave? And is there such an example in the world? No. What happens, what goes on today in the world shows us how interconnected, how tied we are. And no one is free of the good ties that you need to set with all the world. And therefore today, good connections between countries are the most important thing. A good connection between countries. You said that a strong country is one that can control itself. What does it mean to control itself? To control itself means that they can enact such laws in society, even though that they're not so, you know, personally interested in raising taxes in limiting freedoms, etc., etc. But they can take it upon themselves in order to give the country in order to allow the country to correct itself, recover of different economic and social problems, and to continue in a better and more healthy way. So that's real independence? Yeah. Real independence is that no one can tell me, as a country, what do I need to do? But I will now determine what I need to do in order to be healthier, more successful, more prosperous. So in conclusion, what do you wish the American people for their Independence Day? I wish them to be independent, more independent, and to understand that in the, uh, that independence is built by good, nice ties connections with other nations and countries and for them to try to nonetheless with all their abilities the great abilities that they have for them to influence correctly in the right direction all countries in the world in regard to what does it mean to be independent where each helps the others to hold on to their independence, respecting every country, respecting the independence of every other country. Thank you. Good luck. Okay, our next item, the wedding season is Israel is starting, and please, Shelley. Yeah, the wedding season is in full swing, and this year more than before with the surge in the cost of living in Israel, guests are really economically collapsing. People get married in fancy places, demanding 400 shekels per serving. Uh, the couple arrive uh, to the wedding on a ship in a hot air balloon. The bride has to change four dresses during the wedding. To change four dresses in the wedding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Serious work. In short, every such event, you know, it requires you to buy 
the guests. It requires them to buy gifts, new clothes. In short, the guests need to pay for all the crazy ideas that the couple has. Some can't even, some don't even have enough money to feed their children, but they need to meet the standard in order not to ruin their relationship with the couple. What do you think about this? Rabash told me about weddings in Jerusalem. That they used to have them in the backyard. You know, in the old city, there are backyards between the houses, and they used to have their weddings there. And after the ceremony, that you had in the backyard, they used to give everyone a cup of tea and a bun. I don't know if it was sweet or without nothing altogether, but a bun. And if they wanted to get another cup of tea and another bun, they were told, no, you already got yours. And this is actually the wedding. What are you laughing about? It's funny that they say, no, you already got your bun. It's not for dresses or for buns. It's one little bun and a cup of tea. I don't know, with sugar or without. I don't ask. So that's how it was. From then and until now, and how it is now, for dresses to come on a hot air balloon to the wedding, and limousines, and who knows what. And every serving is 400 shekels, you say? Yeah, it's an average. So, what can you do? I have nothing to say. All these signs, they point at the shattering of society that they lost. They lost their meaning. There's no point in having such a connection between people. What are they getting married for? Why do we need to be proud over others and how much my wedding is better than yours? This I don't get. Of course, it's something that you need to do. Somehow, the way it's customary. But not... Not... um, I don't know. I had nothing to say, really. I had no wedding. I don't have a wedding. Nothing. We went to a place where we needed to register. We signed. That's what, that was that. And we left. Me and my wife. I don't get these things. Seems to me that these are signs of social decay. Why? Why, actually? Because everything's done for the sake of pride or to be ashamed by being worse than others. Doesn't it stem from a feeling of a person saying, this is the most important event in my life? What most important event? In a year or two, you'll have another important event. It all depends on social consent. And if a society determines that it's bad, that it's stinky, then we'd stop it. How can society reach this kind of understanding? I see articles. Every year you have these articles about how angry people are, the guests meaning. But no one says, let's stop it, let's change something, let's think. Where can such social consent come from that let's calm these weddings down? 
I think that we need to. Look, I don't know. Were they to take this money and invest it in an apartment and buying an apartment or even traveling to some place? Well, for that couple to take a trip. Great. But in one evening to burn hundreds of thousands of shekels just in order to show everyone that we're like everyone, no less than everyone. What kind of a... You know, it stinks, the high heaven. I have nothing to add. You know, everything is the same. It's with bar mitzvahs, with, from young age, kids get this kind of behavior. The question is, if we look at weddings, it's kind of absurd because many couples get divorced. A third of all couples get divorced even in their first year. Why do we invest so much and inflate the externality because of our pride? Pride! And also in Israel, these are the prices. I came to my son's wedding in Paris. And a nice place next to the Bastilla. I paid on part of our family $3,000. That's it. And the bride's dad also paid the same $3,000. This is what the wedding costed. And he had there 200 people, maybe a bit more. That's it. So you're saying that weddings, like your son's wedding and Bash's wedding, can they suit our generation too? No, no, you know, the thing, it was fine there. That was a French-style wedding, meaning that with, you know, with good food, with everything. Can modesty suit our times too? It's not modesty. It's a matter of taste. Matter of taste. That I am not about to show off and prick people's eyes for everyone to see how. What for? What? They don't know me. They don't know the, the bride's part or something. I don't know. I don't understand. What is it done for? Maybe. 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 Maybe the wedding halls themselves, they're the ones that encourage this trend. Could be. It's also, you know, if my friend got married, I need to have a better wedding. The question is, eventually, what's the value of the ceremony, the wedding ceremony it's Zero. No more than a cup of tea with a bun, like they gave and the Jerusalem weddings back then. The truth is that simple weddings, simple events are funner. The guest enjoys more, he can talk, laugh, it's warmer more, you know, there's like a, it's not stressful like sitting in some hall with all the noise, but I have nothing further to add. Let's stop talking about this. Thank God I'm unrelated to it. I told you, I had no wedding. Just in, uh, spiritually wise, 
Does marriage have a special value? Marriage, of course. We have to get married. And it's really according to the laws of nature, the laws of Torah. We need to get married and and that to determine the beginning of a new family and everything, but not that I make some kind of crazy celebration out of it. There's nothing, nothing there. The couple that gets married, it says that the Creator, he couples, he, he brings couples together. Is everything from, I don't know, but the Creator, he doesn't demand these sums of money. Let's go to something else, really. It's rubbish. Okay, moving on to our next part about the fountain of youth, Chaim. An Israeli study found that injecting a special protein causes the process of rejuvenation of uh, elderly people's skin. Apparently, this revelation is an opening for stopping old age and even for rejuvenating human organs. This is a groundbreaking study that proves that the aging process of human skin can be stopped and even human organs can be made younger. The study has been going on for more than 20 years. It's now published in the Scientific Advanced Science News Journal. Not only that, the external appearance of the skin changes, but also the genetic structure uh, is changed in a way that characterizes young skin. And so signs of aging disappear, and even molecules identify, identified with young skin no longer, they, they disappear in short. Would such a product come to the shelves? Would you use it? I don't think so. I don't think so. You know, suppose it's really so that the body can rejuvenate itself, the entire body, not only the skin or something, because it won't be balanced. But the entire body, uh, like there's some kind of pill that I swallow and my body rejuvenates, meaning it gets power to function effortlessly for another 20 years. I think that a person needs to do that if he can, because then he can perform many other good actions in life, many more good actions in life. A person is competing against nature all the time. We're fighting the limitation of 70, 80 years all the time, trying to extend it more and more. Do you think that at some point we'll be able to defeat nature? I don't think that humanity really wants to pull, uh, to extend human life. What for? I don't know. I think that a person that has reached old age needs to be calm with what he's going through. And when the day of death reaches, then it does. When the day of death comes, then it comes. I don't think that it's something that you need to try to resist. But we see that still humanity is looking for this spring of youth all the time. It's in order to make money off different medicine and things like that. But if there's a market for it, it means that people want it. They want to rejuvenate themselves, live longer. Or could be. But there is in favor and against here. We never, we didn't, uh, up until now, we didn't really see any successful phenomena in this regard. And therefore, I can't say that immediately humanity will run for it. Do you think that science can solve our existential problems, you know, illnesses, not only our lifestyle, because we're trying to use science in order to, to rejuvenate ourselves now? 
Look, no doubt that science can really do many things with our life, make us healthier, allow us to live longer, and we do it anyway by improving our life. That, yes. But the question is, what for? That's the question. What should a person... You know, in the past, a person lived for 40 years. Now it's already 70, 80 years. Now we're approaching 80, 90. And what will happen with 120? What's the use? Uh, adding, adding to these years. What's the use of living so long? What are we going to do with these people? We see that all the efforts to extend life seems like people aren't asking what are we going to do with it, but they act out of fear to die. Right. So only because of our fear of dying will do all these things. I really hope that we'll reach a different kind of solution for that. That will, uh, you know, uh, what's so frightening about dying? Because people have no idea what's next. Give them some new, create some new religion for them that they're going to heaven. They're entering some system that's like, I don't know how to put it. A system that uh, where they're corrected and taken care of and they'll get everything that they want, etc., etc. And, you know, it's boring. People will die of boredom. We'll need to save them of depression, from depression. Okay, it's, uh, it'll come. Today already, depression is the most common disease or illness. If I remember correctly, I think you said that because of fear of death, we think about the meaning of life. Otherwise, we needn't think about it at all. So if we if we'll live so many years until we'll reach a state where we get bored, then what will we think about? What will we be occupied with? First of all, I don't think that we'll live for many years. I don't think that these will be the policies in every country which are to simply distance the day of death for every person. There's no point. A person dies anyway. It's important that he will die in a dignified way and not that he'll lay in his bed for a few dozens of years before finally he vanishes. Also, I'm sure that in nature there are such opportunities of putting people to death in different ways, different other ways. I'm sure that if we extend human life, despite illnesses, etc., etc., people will die in car accidents or in something else, or some spaceship will come and, how to say, will kill us all and things like that. These are things that need to happen one way or another. That's it. 
So, really, is there something like eternal life? There is eternal life, but it is a life that's unrelated to our body. What is eternal life, then? Eternal life is that we can exist in uh, desire to receive, which is eternal. Meaning what? That it doesn't get fulfillment for itself, but that it is capable of being with whole and complete systems where everyone gives everyone, receives from everyone, and from that they have an inner eternal life. Why is the will to... You're saying that a will to receive that gives, why is it eternal? What, what makes it eternal? Because it receives and gives. Receives in order to give. And why does it make it eternal? Because it doesn't waste itself, but only fills others, and by that does not commit suicide. And a desire to receive that once only for itself? If so, can you describe the process in which it dies eventually? Because it all the times receives, absorbs more and more and more, filling itself until it suffocates. Until it can't anymore. What do you mean suffocates? Ceases to want, doesn't want to receive anymore? What do you mean? Eventually, it loses its connection to the upper force with the force of bestowal until it's filled with its force of reception and its connection to the force of bestowal stops and it dies. What it's like a cup that fills up and nothing else can come in? Yeah, I suppose something like that. And if the desire inverts into giving, then actually there is a flow here. Yeah, there's flow. Yeah. And then there's no stop. Okay, I understand. Thank you. Good. So calm down. Take things as they are and be content with it. That's the secret of life. Okay, so thank you very much. Thank you. All the best to you. Write good things. Try to attract some more people. We need to get new people. We need to renew ourselves. Try to do it. And influence those that are responsible for dissemination. Your writers you're responsible um, those responsible for dissemination really need to show us as prospering, developing flourishing, pulling people attracting people to us thank you and all the best